Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Imposter. That's right, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and enjoyable for you, the listening audience. So, because I've been in transit between countries and states within the United States, and cities within those states, um, this episode is one from the archives that I've pulled, and it's a conversation that I recorded between me and a few of my friends from the master's course that we did at Plymouth University. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a casual conversation, but we, we talk about each other's projects and um, have some fun. So let's, let's get right into it, folks. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we, I mean the general public, if it's something that oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literate you are. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of The Imposter. I am Amir Fogel, your lovely host, and today I'm joined by some very good friends of mine. Uh, we'll just go around the room because these are some ex-peers. No longer peers, but ex-peers. So we'll start with my left. Hello, I'm Dean McCone. <laughs> I'm still your peer, by the way. <laughs> You're never my peer. <laughs> Alright, so we have Dean. Uh, I'm Ro. Hello, I'm Ryan. And I'm Josh. And uh, the lot of us were on the EMRES course at Plymouth University between 2014 and 2015. And uh, this episode is just going to be kind of a casual conversation between some good minds. Kind of a mind meld, if you will. Um, so I'm going to start us off, and I'd just like to maybe go around and, uh, and see what everybody's project was. And or final dissertation, we should say. So um, we're going to switch it up and actually start with Joshua. Oh, okay, yeah. So my uh, Emrys uh, thesis was looking at bottlenose dolphins. Um, I was trying to use uh, mathematical models to predict where they might occur spatially in my two study areas, the Bay of Biscay and the English Channel. Uh, it was an interesting project for a few reasons, one of which was it's not, it hadn't been done before. Um, it's especially difficult to do this kind of uh, technique with a species that's wide ranging, trying to pin them down to a certain area and then trying to define a, a decent area where you can protect them. And it was also interesting for me because I learned a lot of new techniques and I learned a lot of things I hadn't uh, realized previously. Quickly to summary, uh, what I found, uh, you can't do it. You can't, you, you, you basically... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, there's been a push recently for science to be published that, that finds kind of nothing. And, and this is interesting in that case because it hadn't been done before. I tried to do it and found it couldn't be done, at least the way I was doing it. It's so difficult to try and link the distribution of a species like the bottlenose dolphin to four or five disparate factors. 
if you don't mind me asking, so then what are some solutions? Uh, more data, more sightings data, more environmental data, uh, maybe uh, prey data, so where their prey naturally occurs. Basically just trying to plug that model, the model I was using, full of, of more. And then you might see a link, you might see something significant, but I didn't. Do you think um, tagging data would be useful in that respect? Tagging data would be extremely useful. Uh, in Europe, though, illegal, possibly? Really? Really? Uh, that's a memory I've got. I know in the USA... That's going on record? You can take skin <laughs> biopsies with a modified rifle, but I don't know if you can tag a bottlenose dolphin, but I'm, okay. I'm not certain. They're an annex two species under EU law, so... I mean, I just feel like, if you could, why haven't they done it yet? Yeah, I mean, that's it, a good point. interesting point. Mm. Yeah. We'll if, have to look that one up. Yeah. It must be permitted to get, like, yeah. to get around. What if it's... I don't know. If it's already a wounded dolphin? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, you, if it's kind of lip swimming. It's looking for a place to die. <laughs> so you can take tissue, you can literally take their skin, but yes. not put a tag in there. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just I'm just thinking about all the papers I read about the species, and I can't remember one where they were tagged. Doesn't David Sims tag sharks? Sharks. 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 sharks so are they had different highlights from dolphins? I, I assume so. They're not, ma they're they're not, not mammals, mammals yeah. So they don't have feelings. I thought it was just vertebrates. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I thought it was vertebrates that, you know, were in their own special sort of protection category. They, they, they are in terms of passing it through the ethics board. It's like any vertebrates or any cephalopods, yeah. come under um, come under something. Like honorary ethics. vertebrates, aren't they? Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're annexed species. But um, mammals are even more protected. They're even more sure. Yeah. And in the EU, special. I don't know if there's a marine mammal more protected than the bottlenose dolphin and the harbour porpoise. They're just Pupus. It's like don't even touch them. There's purpose for that porpoise. Bottlenose dolphins kill harbour porpoises quite Yeah, often. sure, it's yeah. It's quite an interesting thing. Yeah, but then foxes kill know. stoats. No, I know, I'm not I'm not criticizing the uh, the bottlenose dolphin. <laughs> I just think it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Interesting oh yeah. They're very territorial. Yeah. Who's teaming on? Do you know what I learned about otters recently? <laughs> I know this is kind of a tangent, but everybody likes to think of otters as really cute animals, mm. and they're really messed up. Like, you know, there's some sexual assault that goes on by dolphins, but otters not only perform lots of sexual assault on on other otters, <coughs> on dogs. How, how, how but, can you define it as assault if you can't understand their language? Maybe actions. there was consensus. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Well, exactly. I mean, I, okay. I'll, I'll tell you. It sounds ridiculous. How, because it's it's murder. Oh. I read. I read a few anecdotal evidences. Okay, of course, yeah. it's not empirical, but it's anecdotal. Where um, otters drowned dogs that were swimming <laughs> and then proceeded to have sex with their bodies wow. up to like a day or two after the bodies were actually dead. Like. Just floating around, they're like, "Yeah, you're, so you're my, saying, you're my <clears throat> sexual receptacle." But like, Amir, they sleep holding hands. <laughs> yes, and they also kill baby seals and have sex with their bodies. Seals as well. Seals yeah, as well. Likely, they would they... agree to that. <laughs> you seem like yeah. yeah. cross culturally, it's hard to communicate. I mean, yes, you can kill me. In we're, we're, we're a liberal ocean society. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you seen that story with the guy who was like working somewhere, and a, uh, it was a bird. Some bird flew into the window and died. And then another bird came along. It was a duck. And it started having sex with the body for like quite a long time. Wait, the and duck he, was having sex with the with dead the bird? With the dead duck. And he just watched it for ages. And it got published as a paper. It's called <laughs> like the necrophiliac 
gay duck. They're both male ducks as well. It can't be called the neck. <laughs> it is. No, nope. that that's what it's sure. The title. Not only that, it was in Nature. <laughs> yeah, just it front, was a front, front page, page of Nature. <laughs> just like wrote, wrote what was happening and made like photos and then wrote a little paper about it. <laughs> Like, you make it sound so quaint. It's out there somewhere. <laughs> That's interesting in of itself that you can publish. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, you can. You don't need big data sets. You just yeah, need yeah. something horrific. I wonder. Sure. I wonder something how unique it is. I wonder because obviously I've, we've only just talked about two species here. But what other species and or organisms have like like or <laughs> having sex with dead bodies? As something that's common <laughs> well, humans in their birds. behavior, like birds, definitely. Birds, birds do. Is that like a, a thing with birds? Necrophiliac yeah. birds. I just I feel like it. <laughs> I mean, I I believe. How did we get onto necrophilia so quickly? <laughs> I knew it would be about fifteen minutes. I didn't think it would be this soon. Well, listen, you know, you can't you can't go nine minutes without mentioning. Let's, <laughs> Shall we, we realign? All right, all right. We'll realign. So, so that was that. So that was that. Josh, that was a very interesting project, even though you found no true solution. Sure, I didn't find a solution to my problem, but I found a lot of a lot of useful things. And and sorry, last thing before we move on. But well, if anybody else wants to ask anything, go for it. But because, well, are you said there were very protected bombers dolphins. Mm. Is that right? Correct. So how vital is it to find an MPA or include them in MPA planning then? Well, the thing is, they're quite abundant. So I don't... I, so the rationale not, behind their protection is like, I think, to, to prevent local extinctions. I think in the southwest of England, especially, uh, there's a small amount and it'd be cool to protect them because uh, they're not established yet. And... I think it was 1993 where they started being sighted again after an absence, like a large absence mm. from this area. So to maybe try and protect them somehow. But the, I guess the real follow-on question is defining an arbitrary area of ocean and saying that's now protected for the bottom of dolphin. Would it have any effect on yeah. their survival? What's driving their decline? If, if they are declining at all, data is the, is the issue. What, was there a baseline you were going from? I mean, you just said that they had an absence in southwest England, is that what you uh, yeah, until the like mid nineties. Yeah. yeah. So what 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 were they very prevalent there a hundred years ago, or is there? I don't know. No data. But they they are now there, and they weren't. Sure. So should we try and protect them? Interesting. Uh, I don't know if there's baseline data. Yeah. Do you think that um, a big gap in like researching how MPAs work and what we should where we should define them and all that stuff? Do you think they're missing like negative results, like? Possibly. You know that there's a positive, there's a bias towards positive results. So if you say, oh, this doesn't link to bottlenose dolphin distribution, that's really important to get published because if someone else might do the same research mm. and waste their time, or you might have an MPA that's defined based on that and it has no relation to the yeah. bottlenose dolphin. I think both of those points. But do you think that there's, a, for this research area in particular, the, the bias towards you know, I think so problem. because because policy driving drivers, uh, policy makers, they want answers, not further questions. Yeah. So he's saying we've done all this work, and really we need to do more. We need this. We need to ask this question. They don't want to know that. They want to say, look, 
we've got a European target by 2020 to get a cohesive network of MPAs. Just tell us somewhere we can make yeah. one. Yeah. And, and then even if you're screaming at them, this may have no effect. Well, those people are clearly not biologists. Well, no. Yeah, but they want is, something to show on paper. this is where paper. science and policy don't meet. You know? Another uh, question. All right, wait. Sa <laughs> save that because we're going to come back to that very, very topic itself. All right. Ryan, why don't you... Go on and tell us about your project. So I looked at the impact of shipping noise on marine invertebrates such as uh, shore crabs, green shore crabs. Um, using the shore crabs just as a model species, looking at whether shipping noise does have a physiological um, impact on crabs, uh, to which I found that I've, I found some evidence to suggest that there was an impact. Um, my methodologies did have flaws in, um, so I wasn't able to substantially prove um, the impacts. But there, there's certainly evidence for impacts, which has much larger um, consequences, not just for shore crabs, but for any species within areas that are subjected to shipping noise. So we've got most um, harbours and ports are in estuaries, uh, down in the southwest, especially, the estuaries uh, do have all the salmon running at certain times of the year. The bigger picture picture is: Does the shipping noise have an impact on migrating fish up estuaries? And um, that's originally what my study went to look at, but because of permit permissions and things, I had to stick with uh, invertebrates. And mm. um, but. I, I've shown some evidence and there's other studies out there ha that have got some really good evidence for the impact of shipping noise and negative impact on physiology, behavioural um, and physical damages. So are you saying that we would find more like deformed crabs inside harbours? So it, it's not what, so much What are you trying to say, Ryan? <laughs> so I looked at um, breathing rates uh, in crabs. So what I found was that under shipping noise, crabs increase their breathing rates compared to no noise or ambient noise. So the negative impact of that would be that they, they're spending more energy um, metabolizing, so breathing rather than going out and foraging and mating. So there could be much larger effects on uh, crab stocks per se if they're not expending their energy more wisely. So they're hyperventilating and having panic attacks, they which are, is yeah. essentially stopping them from foraging more. That's, that's extrapolating it. They're not so much right. as having panic attacks, but they're, they're increasing their breathing rate. And the, the real question is, <laughs> to what extent? I mean, we've got estuaries that have constant, constant noises, ships going back and forth. Um, how much is this impacting them mm. during, during the daily, daily routines? If um, like, if their if their respiratory rate's getting high, that would indicate that there was a stress response, wouldn't it, to the um, to the shipping noise, and that that stress response was increasing the metabolic demand of the crab. So, yeah, yeah, is that yeah, what, is that yeah exactly. Like, yeah, it looks like there's a physiological the, response yeah. to the crab that they then need to fuel. Which is going to the, mess the up stress the response? Yeah, obviously has is a is a negative impact, and they're not using their energy 
practical methods as efficiently as it could be. I wonder yeah. if they would acclimatize to a ship going past. Well, I've a busy area. There has been there has been a study that looked at shore crabs and acclimatization. Um, it's also what I tried to look into. Um, I'm not entirely convinced if there is. Mm. The other studies showed that with a repeated playback of shipping noise, the crabs didn't um, their their stress response wasn't reduced, so it was suggested that they mm. reached sort of a maximum yeah. um, stress response when exposed to shipping noise. I actually looked at, um, I actually played two different time, types of shipping noise right. to crabs, so uh, shipping noise that was recorded from the estuary that I collected them in, and shipping noise that was recorded from a different estuary and looked at um, different responses. And again, there, there was some evidence to suggest that there were differences in responses. So it could be the sound raging of the shipping mm. noise itself. Um, there may be differences there. But there needs to be a lot do more you, studies into recording the sounds <coughs> in estuaries. Do you mean like, could a crab, could one shipping, one ship make a sound that a crab can actually hear because of its hearing range and another not? So, so crabs don't, don't actually mean, like. It's a good question. How do crabs? There's a, how do crabs hear yeah. sounds? So crabs aren't actually able to hear sounds. What they feel is the the vibration in the in the water mm. column. Are they good vibrations? <laughs> Answer the question. Well, <laughs> oh yeah, clearly. So, so, so your study was in situ. You had them in the laboratory. I, I had them in the lab. We did look at. You tried to do it in situ. situ. Yeah. It, it came down to financial and logistical constraints. Mm. But that really, what happens with ex situ studies is we don't really know if we get the same results in the field. Because when you play back sounds in a lab to experiment, you've got an ex a very different environment. Yeah. So the sound itself behaves very differently. And as Dean was saying, how, how do crabs hear? Well, they detect the particle motion. Um, yeah. Where I was cool. recording sound, <laughs> I was recording the sound pressure levels um, and inferring this as being the same as particle motion. However, it, it's known that it's different. The it's trouble is <clears throat> detecting particle motion is very difficult, mm. so it's, it's often so the whole So the crab's whole body picks up these. There's no like hairs or anything that are... So, so yeah, so they've got hairs on their legs and right. statocysts within on their nerve cells they've got um, tiny little hairs that, that detect the, the motions of and they imagine the nerves went to the brain that's basically what we've got isn't it <laughs> yeah effectively how long is the lifespan of a shore crab or the ones the species you were looking at and is know? that relevant <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll take you through my train of thought. My train of thought is this. This this is my train of thought. If you're if you're looking to see if it's acclimatizing to shipping sounds, will it acclimatize? Does does the like time of exposure in the lifespan of that crab? dictate if it will have an easier time or a harder time acclimatizing? Wait, and also, in terms of future generations, does a first-generation exposure make it that maybe its offspring would be more used to a louder environment? There has been a study that shows that a larger crab um, actually has a greater or an increased stress response when exposed to shipping or to mm. a smaller crab. 
So you can infer that a larger crab being an older crab, um, but this goes against what you're saying. So these larger crabs mm. would have been exposed. react more strongly yeah, yeah. to shipping noise than your younger crabs. But as well, there's so less. They, so that's not evidence for acclimatization. Yeah. So they perceive more particle motion, is it not? Uh, so is it, or that's possibly the case. Are they too slow has, and bigger to get into smaller places that smaller crabs could hide in and know they have that option as well? It's still questions we can't answer. It's yeah. all interesting. It's, as, as, it's, um, it's a very new field. And like I said, the, bigger, the biggest problem is ex situ studies and the difference in how sound behaves yeah. in the field. And yeah, is, fair enough. Is there any evidence that um, under ship like conditions where there's shipping noise that crabs um, actually alter their behaviour? So is there any evidence that um, crabs will reduce their foraging behaviour when exposed yeah. to the shipping yeah, noise? Yeah, there, there is it. They do reduce their foraging under shipping noise um, is what an, another study which which again had its flaws um, which I can't I would be in a position to say who it was but there were its flaws um, within that study that creates a situation where um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword where you've got the um, uh, you've got the increased metabolic load on the crab as a result of the stress of the shipping noise, but then they're also going to be taking in less well, energy. <coughs> well, the, well, the reduced foraging will be a factor of the increased stress response. So they're spending more time breathing. So their breathing rates are increased. So rather than foraging, they're actually sitting there, so almost panicking under the ship shipping noise. So, so the um, so the increased breathing rate is also associated with just staying still. That's not something that I looked at, but okay. I'm. I would like to look at that um, because my I had I had they looked as though there was two different um, two different responses in my study. One was to increase breathing rate, and there there were a lot of crabs that decreased their breathing rate. So potentially, <laughs> so there was right. so there was, there was <laughs> but he was smaller than not point not five. There was there's the potential that there's two different behaviour behaviours going on. Um, one would be to sit and wait out the perceived threat being mm. the ship pass, and um, the other one would be to find a hiding place um, so the, the crabs all kept in my study the crabs all kept in the same chamber which didn't have a anywhere for them to go so there could be differences in behavior there mm. um, which need much further studies I'm not able to infer anything from yeah. on, on that front but well and also vibrations ten, potentially there's two different behaviors that crabs can yeah. Can I ask a final question? I assume. Uh, oh, I've, got more. Oh. I've got more too, but go on. Oh. Oh. Has a crab ever had sex with a dead animal? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Funny you mentioned that. Right. Right. Well, not only that, they... Broadcast they've... spawning. We, we did go another 14 minutes without mentioning necrophilia. So hey. That's pretty good. There you go. <laughs> uh, I would like to know, and I don't know if this is something you can ask, but it's more on the physiology. Mm of crabs do you think that crabs can get a head rush from <laughs> hyperventilating 
Like, do they do they extract the oxygen molecules when they're resp- respirating very fast, and then they get dizzy, and then that dizziness throws them off guard, and become more susceptible to predation? Please tell us what happens. Please tell us, Ryan. What do you want me to say? (laughs) Do crabs get dizzy? (laughs) When when they're respirating. Do do their inner ears kind of go all fudgy? You You want to see through the eye of a crab. Let us in with our lips. On a stone. Imagine your eyes on a stone. We just cannot think like a crab like you can. (laughs) I've seen you get in there. Uh, Really just act a crab. (laughs) I think I'm, most... I haven't been with a crab for a long time now. <laughs> not, not since my college years. I'd be crabby about it. I think <laughs> most of the work on like you know sound in the marine environments focused on the things that obviously you sound like dolphins and whales. Do you think Don't like sound so disgusted? <laughs> but, hey, but things that actually understand and have evolved to perceive. <laughs> but every but here's the point. Point making is that everything the sea does, but. We don't really seem to look at it much. Like, no one would ever think, oh, crab must, you know, click. Yeah, and Ryan sense. didn't think that. He wanted to look at salmon. And yeah, that's, yeah, He was neglecting the crab. <laughs> <laughs> no one likes the but crab. I've seen things about how um, certain larvae of invertebrates will move towards the sound yeah, of a exactly. coral reef, being, you know, like the click, all the clicks that fish make, all the weird Definitely. sounds they make. There, there's also evidence in. Um, some some marine invertebrate larvae don't actually develop under white noise, um. So there is that's crazy. That, yeah. So sound does yeah, have a that's a big physical effect and a physiology. But massively ignored, not studied. Wow. But so it's, understudied, and it is, and it's the problem is all. Ro has something to say. <laughs> in, in like uh, aspects like reef noise and their role in invertebrate recruitment are studied. Um, and it is important, especially in crustacean recruitment. So, yeah, it's not it's not an entirely neglected field. It might be a neglected field in terms of like the responses of adult organisms physiologically. I don't actually know that field particularly well, but yeah, it's I would not, say it's not entirely ignored in biology. <laughs> and I, I, I would also I would like to agree with that and and add well semi agree <laughs> for at least the Lasmobrinks. Um, there's Great. different there's different studies and also Magnus. not studies and just and just anecdotal evidence where, like, they take plastic water bottles and crinkle them up and it attracts great whites because they're like, oh, these are low vibrations. And it's just like what the vibrations of a squiggling fish would give off. But then, did anybody see that um, article that was like they played um, heavy metal, I think it was, or death metal, thrasher <laughs> music? Like, what? yeah, and it attracted great whites because it, it was giving off the same vibrations. So they tried different genres. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, they should do the thing with babies and like neonatal care where they're like, classical music is supposed to stimulate the developing mind. Classical like, music makes great whites go nuts. <laughs> feeding frenzy. <laughs> they, they make a mosh pit. In the middle, like <laughs> they're just bashing other sharks. Oh, well, start well. having sex with dead seals. Only four minutes. Oh, all right. So, uh, Ryan, that was enlightening. Thank you for sharing about the crabs and the noise. Um, Mr. Rowe, why yeah. don't you go ahead and take us on to yours? Um, I looked at the effect of ocean acidification on invertebrate recruitment on coral reefs. And uh, we're, we basically showed that under conditions expected by 2100, um, invertebrate settlement and the abundance and presence of different important species on a coral reef are severely affected um, 
by the acidic conditions in the future ocean. Yeah. So. That's quite the mouthful. Define important species. Uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> Why you got to be so discriminatory, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Well. Um, what are your keystone I mean, species? This this is a good point. Like, um, just to explain what you'd consider a keystone species or an important species, it's, some, it's something that plays like a, a disproportionately large ecological role relative to the abundance of the organism in total. So a good example of that would be something like a grazing gastropod, um, like a grazing snail. Um, because they'll control algal populations on the reef and stop coral being overgrown. They also um, are an important uh, species for the feeding of higher organisms like fish. Um, yeah, so if grazing invertebrates or grazing uh, gastropods start disappearing from coral reefs, then there's going to be big shifts in habitat, for example, and fish populations and everything around them. Um, the other, so the important species that we're considering here uh, were grazing gastropods specifically. Um, and a few crustacean species. So we really looked at um, amphipods, decapods, and copepods, uh, which are all really important um, prey species for any zooplanktivorous organisms that live in the area. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> we we found pretty profound shifts in um, in how they're being recruited to coral reefs. Um, any well, the grazing gastropods is, was probably our most significant finding where. Um, we just found that any calcified organisms or any organisms that make shells like gastropods um, are really heavily reduced and that's because their larval stages are really, really vulnerable um, and then their post-settlement development stages are really vulnerable to the acidic conditions that we're going to be witnessing um, in the future high CO2 world. Um, so that's obviously going to have big ecological impacts on, um, on coral reefs. And then secondarily, uh, we just found a general trend of reduced abundance in crustaceans, uh, which is likely to have knock-on effects for zooplanktivorous fish or and any other zooplanktivores. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's quite an interesting project, and I think it's starting to look like it's providing evidence that there might be some feedback loops in habitat shifts on coral reefs. So um, these acidic conditions are quite damaging to coral reefs anyway. Um, because corals are calcifying organisms and this more acidic ocean is going to start dissolving their, their skeletons and making them more expensive to form. But on top of that, with the reduction in uh, grazing calcifiers, like calcifying gastropods, the pressure that's put on coral reefs in terms of them being overgrown by algae is going to increase quite significantly. So that positive feedback is likely to just accelerate habitat shifts where coral reefs start disappearing and they, they get replaced with um, macroalgae dominant uh, types. I'd like to zero on one point, which is kind of what we were talking about with Ryan's, which is the difference between kind of the lab work and the in-situ data and why it's important for your specific project. Yeah, um, well, it's, it was a big challenge of the whole field of ocean acidification where um, uh, lots of people had done studies in laboratories looking at the physiological responses of a single organism to, um, to acidified conditions and they were finding finding all sorts of stuff. They're finding some organisms are really resilient, some of them really suffer, um, and they also found quite significant differences um, even between uh, congeneric species or closely related species. Um, but one of the problems with all this physiological data coming out of laboratories is you just, it, it's not possible to extrapolate that to a natural environment and draw any sort of conclusion or create any sort of model of, of um, what the world's going to look like in the future or what these particular marine environments of these organisms within them are going to look like. Um, 
uh, and there's there's quite influential paper that came out in 2015, which was basically just saying there's no point in doing work on organism response to social acidification outside the context of their communities, because the shifts in ecological interactions between organisms who are under the effect of ocean acidification is actually going to determine who the winners are and who the losers are. Um, now, mm. for this uh, for this study that we did for the for my endless thesis, we um, went to volcanic CO two seep in Papua New Guinea, and were you there personally? Twisting the knife, bro. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't allowed to go and collect that myself. Anyway, um, moving on. Sorry, so, yes, go on, please. So the uh, the professors went on a little <laughs> trip to Papua New Guinea, <laughs> and uh, yeah, basically what what we have over there is. Um, it's an area of volcanic activity where high CO2 gas, which is about 99% pure CO2, bubbles through the water column and it creates an area of localised seawater acidification, which is comparable to the conditions we're expecting in 2100 um, under the RCP 8.5 scenario from the IPCC. Is that a conservative prediction? No, that's the worst case scenario. Right. Um, or I say worst case scenario, it's more like if we don't do something significant about our emissions imminently. Is, yes. that a, is that scenario avoidable? Do you think we could? Yeah, that scenario is avoidable, but it's, um, uh, yeah, it's... Like, you'd be like if, if the what the what lots of European countries have said now, you know, like Germany said, we'll be getting 80% of our electricity from renewables by 2050, like, if they deliver on that, yeah. is, is that... Uh, so just, yeah, as a tangent... I take it that's within, that is, that would be a... A better scenario than the scenario you've used in this. Uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. would be, but okay. not necessarily by like an enormous amount. Yeah. So, um, uh, so the uh, so the IPCC when they when they did their project, they um, uh, they came up with four scenarios. One was the best case scenario. One was the if nothing changes scenario, and then there were two kind of middle middle bands. Right, so yeah, yeah, eight point yeah. five was the worst, and there was six, four, and I think two point five. Um, and basically, at the moment, things look like they're going to fall somewhere between 8.5 and 6.5, so the two worst, yeah. um, the worst scenarios. But if everything comes through the Paris Agreement, then like, then um, then it might be towards the lower ends, which would be beneficial. Um, you know these both these um, CO two seeps. How old are they? Mm. On a scale of one to ten. <laughs> no, so, so they've been documented for at least uh, 80, 80 years. Um, but it's almost certain that they're hundreds and hundreds of years old. We, we just don't have any records of that being the case. How um, often are, are they found? Are, are there new ones found yearly? Mm, no, as in, do new ones pop up in an area where they didn't previously exist? Or, or, or is or the technology... Or have they just yeah. been discovered more yeah. frequently? So from... from uh, the perspective of science working on the biology of these CO2 seeps, they, they're found, you know, they'll, they'll probably find a new one every few years. Like, they're, they're found now in um, in the Azores. There's one in Papua New Guinea. That I think there are two in Italy. And are there any that weren't previously in an area, which now are? Not as far as I'm aware. I think um, I think all of the ones that people are working with at the moment have, have been established for a, for a known, you know, set period of time. And they haven't just kind of sprung up overnight and someone's pointed out to a scientist that there's a CO2 seeping here. Do you think that they could be old enough so that the communities that live around them have actually 
had a lot of time to acclimatize and adapt to the kind of CO2 and maybe might yeah. not represent the response that that would happen from a anthropogenic CO2 introduction, which might be more rapid. Um, yeah, interesting point, interesting framing of the point yeah, as well. Yeah, badly worded. Um, <laughs> like, I think, so, so the... Uh, the assumption that we generally operate on when we're studying these seeps is that they're established communities, so um, that they have reached their, uh, or, or I mean, the ecological time for it would be an equilibrium community where, where it's no longer in its developmental stages and its successional stages, it's reached the point where it's going to be, um, and, and that's useful for our observations. Um, in terms of how that's, uh, how we can use that to model future responses under, uh, essentially what we're saying is like, we're going to see a rapid change, mm -hmm. whereas these things might have been exposed to it yeah. for hundreds of yeah. years. Yes, um, yeah. But in reality, these communities are like, um, although they've been exposed to it for hundreds of years, because they're so localised, um, they're, it's, it's, they've not had time to genetically adapt necessarily. So the kelp species within a seeping region of localised acidification won't necessarily be genetically different from the kelp species outside. The only place we see that is in, um, certain marine invertebrates which have very 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 small dispersal ranges um, but yeah it's, it's a really interesting point but basically we treat them as equilibrium communities can i add something onto that question which is that with that in mind then or maybe when it comes to the case of those very specific invertebrate communities but when we're, you know, you know how you have those coral nurseries now, and they're going out and they're planting, you know, different corals to kind of rebuild it, but if, you know, <coughs> ocean acidification continues in the trajectory it's given right now, you can plant all the coral you want if it's not resilient to kind of the acidity that's coming, essentially, then it doesn't matter. Is there a way that we can find different species, or in terms of, I guess, artificially... Um, uh, reproducing more resilient species yeah. over time. Yeah, uh, I mean, I see. Based ba based on those natural yeah. kind of seeps and the communities that they form. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not necessarily relevant to the seeps, but um, just to address your first point in terms of like transplanting corals, there's massive variance in the resilience of different coral species um, and different genotypes within a coral species to um, to acidic conditions. So, like, really, the more coral that we're breeding, the more coral we're transplanting. Um, the greater the likelihood that coral reefs as a habitat will persist rather than species-specific stuff. Sure. Um, and then to address the second part of your point, um, yes, there's a, there's a assisted reproduction project in coral going on at the moment in Hawaii, which uh, Ellie Vaughan, one of our course members, yeah, yeah. ah yes, good old Ellie, um, and that was that was a grant won by um, scientists at the University of Hawaii called Ruth Gates, and she um, if. I don't have I don't understand the research that well, but I think what she's doing is um, uh, identifying resilient genotypes in certain in certain coral species, um, and then fragmenting them to breed them, um, and then to just keep um, selecting the most resilient coral species to to temperature and acidification, and then uh, to keep fragmenting them and breeding them, and then the idea of that probably would be to eventually start transplanting those hyper-resilient genotypes into natural populations. And then um, those genotypes would be at a competitive advantage to the less resilient genotypes. And hopefully that would keep some sort of balance in these communities as, is, um, as these conditions prevail. Is there any forethought to maintain biodiversity in this case? 
you know, like, okay, so what I'm thinking is right, yeah. in, in the area, when I was living in Mexico, in the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef, they, in the Tulum area, I should say, where I was, um, they, the coral there got horrible white brand? Mm. White, band. Band. white band. White band, white mm-hmm. band, yeah. And, you know, like, 65% of the coral was kind of decimated and gone within a year or two, something like that, because they were all the same species. They were all susceptible. So one example of why biodiversity is important is because if you have different species, they might have different resiliences to different diseases and so on and so forth. So if in the future you only have like two or three different species that are capable of kind of thriving on a reef, what, you know, what does that mean for the biodiversity of that reef? I mean, first of all, um, that's not the case. Like, uh, it's not a case where there's only going to be, you know, a, a, a couple of coral species that can sure. survive. There's, there's going to be um, a lot. Yeah. You know, I don't want to just chuck out an arbitrary figure. But, but it's, <laughs> go on, it's go not, on. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's not like just a handful. There, there's going to be a lot of coral species. And then even amongst coral species that are, um, even amongst coral species that are susceptible, there's going to be genotypes which are not. Um, and then I guess your point still applies in terms of like genotype diversity, and yeah, that yeah. would make a less resilient population to other um, stresses. But another thing that's probably pretty unique about the coral is you've got the symbiont diversity to play around with. So that could be you could actually be selecting mm-hmm. different um, algal symbionts that live in them, sure. and that could be conferring the resilience on it. So you could, you might not have to inbreed the coral. For for just the listeners' that reference, point. that's the zoo and Thali. Yeah, the zooxanthellae live inside the coral that photosynthesize and release sugars and amino acids, and then the coral provides the provides the algae with a home and other nutrients that like work together in a symbiosis. But you can select the different strains so strains of the zooxanthellae, and that can create a more resilient coral. Yeah, but the coral hasn't necessarily changed itself. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Um, and it's just a case of making sure that these corals can accept um, the thermoresilience of xanthalate, which um, a lot of them can. Like, there's lots of research going on in the Red Sea about um, the relative effects of what zooxanthellae is, is um, colonising coral to how resilient it's going to be to bleaching, which is sure. really the main yeah, yeah, yeah. threat. Um, yeah, it's, basically it's a really promising area of research. It's a really interesting area of research and there's a lot of um, like very, very good people working on it. It's a great word. Susan. Susan. <laughs> Can I also point out how um, frustrating uh, the way they name coral diseases is? Like white, they're called like white band disease, white pox disease, white pox, white disease, black pox, <laughs> black band disease. <laughs> it just keeps going on and on. I'm like, Jesus Christ, how am I supposed to tell you apart? <laughs> Surely there must be uh, a better way to do it. All right, well, that was very enlightening, Rohan. Thank you very much. Um, let's move on to our uh, kelp individual. Token uh, Irishman. Our token Irishman, our Bushmills advocate, <laughs> our, our Guinness milk <laughs> wiener. This podcast is brought to you Guinness by is Guinness. Vegan. <laughs> is it not? I don't eat meat, all right? I'm allowed to drink beer that goes through something. <laughs> That's how old Dick it's K about is about <laughs> It's about I'm reduction. I'm providing jobs not... for Germany. It doesn't matter what else I'm doing. Not, not speaking some ridiculous, you know, principle of not touching an animal or looking at an animal. It's impossible. 
Do you? What are you talking about? <laughs> do you covet your neighbor's animal? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I'm gonna get that rabbit. <laughs> it's mine now. Don't worry, you pay for that. I'm just pouring its fur and it trickles through. <laughs> really adds a nice taste. All right. Oh, sorry, Josh. I was gonna say, Dean, you found out something that means nothing to no one. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a double negative. That means it means something to everyone. Damn right. Interesting. I like that. Alright, Dean. I prefer triple negative. Tell us about uh, kelp. So my too much. my project was actually looking at when kelp have intercourse with another kelp that's dead. <laughs> Wait, that was, a good that was 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 minutes wow. from the last neck. We're getting yeah. better, guys. The program is really helping us. <laughs> um, no, I was uh, looking basically. My project was to find an undiscovered group of viruses that infect kelp. Uh, kelp are the biggest of the brown seaweeds, which you will see on any rocky shore. They are. Um, <laughs> Really interesting, despite the yawning motions I'm getting from some of our, my fellow podcasters. Um, so, the term is peers. Are they a keystone species? Yes, they are. Wow. They are the. They it's are. I've heard of that tonight. They are the coral. <laughs> they're the coral reefs of cold waters, basically. I hear kelp is useless, except for cold water coral reefs, which are <laughs> the coral reefs of cold waters. <laughs> oh, but they're really deep. They not really deep not all of them. Black coral is a fairly temperate, deep coral, isn't temperate it? Temperate cold waters. They're the less interesting cousin of the coral reef. Massively. Are, are cold water corals... <laughs> wait, sorry, sidebar. Cold water corals are, are mostly not the carbonate corals? Is that right? That's, that's not right. Yes, right. Um, you heard so it here right. first. <laughs> cold water corals grow quicker than cold water corals? <laughs> that's not right again. <laughs> they generally have faces of the presidents... Oh, I always knew Mount Rushmore was a coral. <laughs> <laughs> it does a have that living. I had, I had my suspicions. <laughs> if you look close enough, they're like, you know, their noses, polyps everywhere. <laughs> That's just because the uh, forefathers were very zitty, you know. Bad, smallpox bad skin. smallpox looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, sorry, I interrupted Dean. Go on. And, so, yeah, uh, they're uh, enormous seaweeds. They are used in everything. You've probably consumed them today without knowing. <laughs> Um, they use them as industrial processes. They're made to use, make dairy products, all processed foods. There's even some really wacky weird uses, which I'll talk about later. <laughs> but um, really important, um, they change the they change the atmosphere by releasing iodine chemicals. They've been used to prevent deficiency diseases. Um, Asian people eat millions of tons of them every year. It's probably why they outlive us. If you were gonna go vegan. Uh-huh. Would you eat kelp? <laughs> um, I would. In fact, I actually do uh, consume that. I'm vegan. <laughs> it took 48 minutes for you to tell us that you were vegan. That's <laughs> a vegan record. <laughs> I didn't bring it up first. You brought it up first. That's true. <laughs> Have you seen Cowspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there's, so basically my project was looking for um, to see if they're infected by a virus to see what that would mean for the impacts that it would have on them in the future because they're they're basically depicted to some kelp forests are predicted to disappear by 2100 the same year Rose said 
under climate change scenarios and then also want to, there might be implications for the industries that rely on kelp so what are those industries sorry so alginates they extract alginates from kelp alginates are these long chain polysaccharides that bind to metals and they have really unique useful properties they um increase the viscosity of things so they bind stuff together they used to make gels toothpaste dairy products um asphalt all kinds of things and there are major there are main source of those who really have much other alternatives some bacteria make them but kelp we rely on a lot um and there's also the food industry they're also added to um cattle feeds and agricultural fertilizers and um the only known viruses in seaweeds uh, are of ectocarpoids, which are very small uh, filamentous species that aren't, we don't use um, in industries or eat. They're not as, in some ways, they're not as important to humans. And the virus, is, what it does is basically it hijacks the reproduction of the seaweed and makes the reproductive organs produce viruses instead of spores. And it has this sort of it's called a latent infection, so it has this sort of weird, you know, not typical uh, infection cycle where it has a stable relationship with its host, and it just it doesn't kill the host. It just stays in the genome, and it becomes active at certain times, so it can synchronize its production of particles at the same time as the spores, and then that's how it maintains its relationship so it lies dormant it lies but dormant. but the kelp is still kelp does what it does yeah well there's they're very badly they're very they're very understudied so when they've looked at some seaweeds with the virus sometimes the virus does affect photosynthesis in some species it makes it photosynthesis increase and in others it decreases so really nobody really has any idea what these viruses mean so for... sorry to cut you off well, i'm not sorry to... at all actually <laughs> Um, but what is the ramifications then? So, <clears throat> why, why why are you same, why is this important to? So study? the same studies have um, also changed the temperature of seaweeds infected by these viruses, and what happens is some of them start producing more viruses, and it actually shuts down the reproduction, and others doesn't have that effect. So we don't know what will happen as the sea temperatures increase, whether these viruses could shut down the reproduction of, of basically all species of seaweeds. But, but for kelp, this would be especially important. And we're already seeing kelp forests starting to disappear. And one of the leading, one of the main things that happens when they start to disappear is the microscopic life cycle stage is the most sensitive to temperature and that starts to produce fewer gametes and you see certain species of kelp start to retreat and move towards the poles whilst other species which are able to produce gametes and spores at those higher temperatures start to replace them so we have a similar scenario in Plymouth where we have a Japanese kelp and a Portuguese kelp which are adapted to warmer waters are actually starting to replace the native kelps and it's I, there's not a lot I, I think one of the main battlefronts between these species is when they're reproducing at the microscopic phase of their life cycle so if you have a different virus in one species and another that behaves differently in different temperatures 
let's say it shuts down the reproduction of a native kelp when the water temperature is raised, mm. but in a, the invasive or kelp, it doesn't have that effect. That could be a major um, driving factor in the shifts related to climate change. But this is all um, my speculation so far because absolutely nothing is known about them. So my whole project was to just find out whether kelp have a virus and I was able to find that there is one in several species and it looks like it does the same thing as in the ectocarpoid so it looks like it um, takes over the, the reproductive organs in the microscopic life cycle stage and then it fills them with virus particles and then um, probably releases those to infect the spores. It's my understanding, based on looking at those microscopic images that you did, when you say that it affects the reproductive system or process, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, because I very well could be, but that it actually literally explodes? <clears throat> yeah, they go, it fills to the point where the whole cell is just virus particles. Yeah. There's no organelles, there's no chloroplasts, there's nothing, it just goes... And that's how you knew that it was a virus infected... Well, we know because we use a stain that binds to uh, DNA. And in a normal cell, you look at it, you can see we use a special microscope that makes chlorophyll appear red and DNA DNA will appear blue with the stain. So you look at a normal cell, you've got a big old blue nucleus and red chloroplasts around the edge. Everything looks normal, fine. Then you see these other cells that don't have any chloroplasts, there's no structure in there at all, it's just a massive blue, there's no, the cell walls disrupted, doesn't look at all like a normal algal cell. Let me, and the same cells are found in kelp and in the other seaweed that has a virus. So getting down to it, the nitty gritty of your project, mm. sir, what would you say the cash money point is <laughs> of your final dissertation. I think the cash money point is showing that this virus has impacts on the photosynthesis growth and especially the production of the spores and the gametes because from from visiting a kelp farm myself back in uh, Stratford Lock. <laughs> back in the old days. Back in Stratford Lock. Um, and from reading about all the industries that are um, set up mostly in Asia and all the wild harvesting practices done elsewhere in the world. It's completely dependent on you grow your, your kelp up and then you get the spores again and then you reseed those in a tank and then you grow them up and put them back in the water. It's completely dependent on getting those spores and gametes and if you're getting less of those that's going to make your whole industry really fragile and you need to know what the virus means, especially if the water, the, the waters of the world are getting warmer. I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest uh, cash money. <laughs> cash money takeaway point. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. That is all we have time for. Um, but don't forget to tune in to next week when we continue our little mini-series on products that contain animal ingredients. Uh, and you don't want to miss next week, trust me. A doozer. Very interesting stuff, in my humble opinion. 
Um, and yeah, don't forget to like and share us on Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter. We are also on iTunes now, though you have to search with my name, search with Amir Fogel on iTunes, because uh, for some reason the imposter doesn't show up. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I am narcissistic, but this just happens to be a fun coincidence. So <laughs> there you go. Deal with it. Anyway, all right, everybody, we will see you next week, and you have a good night. All right, everybody.